Hey, Sarah. Hi, Kim. <laughs> so, oh no, it's, did you hear that? Siri thought I'm talking to her. Okay. That happens to everyone in my family at really? every family Sarah. gathering, and especially with the Western New York hey. accent because my name sounds more like Sierra. <laughs> like everybody's phones will just be oh like, Oh my goodness. I didn't get that. <laughs> that is so funny. That's like one of your fun facts that you can use for like icebreakers. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, well, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really stoked of to course. be here. We like we've already been talking before we hit record and I was just like we need to just hit record because we're going <laughs> to we're going to miss out on all the juicy stuff if we don't. Um so I was telling you right before we pressed record that I never know how to start or end this podcast. I also like, I, I, I want it to feel so natural where it isn't like a set thing every time, like yeah. a robot or like, like, um, like, I don't know, a TV show. I want it to be like, we're just two friends hanging out. As one of your podcast fans and listeners, I can say that it never feels, I never notice that the beginning uh, might feel weird to you. It does feel natural, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Of course. Yeah, I'm just like, all right, let's start. <laughs> I feel the same way, though, when, like, in my uh, sessions with my my own therapist, I always, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how are we, it's because it's such a deep dive it's like you're floating mm-hmm. at the top of the water and there's this expectation or understanding that within a certain amount of time, you're going to be at the bottom of the ocean. And it's like, who's yeah. going to go first? How fast are we going to go? And sometimes like someone will just say something and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, well, that makes sense because when I was seven, this thing happened and you're just mm-hmm. off to the races. That is such a good um, analogy for that feeling because I feel like when I'm in therapy, like... I, it actually like heightens my anxiety because I'm like, I don't know what to work totally. on. What is the best thing that's going to get me there? And and it's like, I try to manufacture it or try to like find just the right thing. And that's, that's part of my like issue of wanting control too. Mm-hmm. I actually got that analogy from the books right here. It's my like songwriting Ooh. book. Oh my goodness. How cool. Yeah. And writing better lyrics. Mm-hmm. It's um, who's it by? It's by Pat Pattinson. And I, when I started kind of committing myself more to writing my own music, I actually looked up the curriculum at Berkeley for their songwriting classes there. And I just bought like oh, their cool. all the books that they required their like freshmen to get. And this is one of them, and I love it, and that's an analogy they talk about in the beginning, that songwriting, like many other things, like going to therapy or anything you, like, actively practice, um, is kind of like this deep dive that each time you do it can feel more graceful and you can access whatever you're looking for more quickly. I think the analogy that Pat makes is, like, to a pearl um, inside of a shell, Mm. that, like, you want that special idea or like that big idea that's going to make your song uh, feel right. And sometimes the deep dive takes like months and sometimes it happens within seconds. And it's kind of mm-hmm. just like this acknowledgement of that is the process. So I I feel like that analogy works well for music therapy too. 
Because, you know, there's this expectation when we get out of school and when we pass the certification exam, we get those four letters with the weird dash in between. <laughs> Which, okay, what's what's the dash for? Does it need to be there? I don't... If, <laughs> if it was anywhere, it would actually, like, grammatically be between B and C. Board certified. Yeah. It would be yeah. MTB dash C. But I don't know. That was a decision that many people signed off on. <laughs> what I was saying before I got into the hyphen conversation <laughs> was, um, you know, we go through the school and we get our certification and it's like, yes, I'm going to do the most um, rich and meaningful work right off the bat. And it's going to be amazing. And I want to go right there right away. And is that really realistic for usually a 20-something-year-old to be able to even think that deeply? Yeah, I... That's definitely something that I struggled with setting that expectation for myself, particularly in internship. I had a very um, unexpected and very cool experience as my first practicum. I had a client that I was able to like go super deep with super quickly. Mm. And it was like a one in a million experience that that would have been my first practicum client, that this was just someone that on like a soul level we really connected with. And then kind of like you were saying before we started recording, um, I then had this expectation on myself that it was always my responsibility to be the one like going deep. And then I was turning around Mm. and looking at myself and being like, well, my therapy doesn't look like it did with that first client. So it's me. And yeah. yeah. And maybe someone came out and said to me, a supervisor, a professor, or a peer that, like that was a very unusual experience and it's not always going to be like that. I don't remember anyone mm-hmm. saying that to me. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely, but I wasn't super self-aware at the time either. So I actually haven't made that connection until like right now that that first experience um, definitely mm-hmm. impacted how I viewed myself as a clinician moving forward. Yeah, it like sets the tone. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's so interesting. I I would never like I I haven't thought about this either how our early music therapy experiences kind of set the bar for what it should look like or what we expect to be doing or even yeah how we expect to carry ourselves in those contexts. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. I've, I'm like thinking back. Yeah, me to too. I was just like my experiences. <laughs> yeah, like like what I thought I had to be, um, what it looked like, what I did musically, even. Um, and that's so different from how I think and operate today. But you know, I do think that there's this part of me that's always trying to like get back there. I was just going to say that (laughs) because that first client for me felt like one of my most authentic and like free of external Mm. pressure uh, to look a certain way in that relationship. Um, It was just like an unfiltered, like 
I was so green, so excited, mm-hmm. and just like bringing in all I had as a musician at that point. And I also kind of had the benefit that I was a transfer student, so I had like one mm-hmm. less year of being surrounded by like the music therapy world. Um, so I felt super fresh and super, I guess, unprepared in some ways. So mm. I rode a lot more on my musical and interpersonal skills than on my therapy skills. And yeah. that is still the type of clinician that I am, is that it's like music in person first for me. And then not that the clinical mm-hmm. skills don't matter, um, but that's just my style of therapy and interacting can with you, my clients. Can you like paint the picture of maybe what what that looks like? For anyone wondering, like, what what do you really mean by that? Sure. Um, I've never really put it into words, so this, this I don't think this is going to come out gracefully. <laughs> no, this will be great. I mean, I love I love that you're just going for it and, and here for the process. I feel like we're both, like, processing through things together on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's always been music for me before music therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Something I've been reflecting a lot on actually in just the most recent uh, past few months has been that something I've been working on in therapy is that music was my safe space like growing up Um, Mm. I lived I grew up in a childhood where I didn't uh, have many of my emotional needs met by my caregivers and as I've kind of unpacked that I realized that my emotional needs were met by music whether that was listening or writing Um, or playing Um, Mm -hmm. and I think because I have such a sacred and intimate and deep relationship with music um, I can't help but that's the first thing that I connect with my clients with Um, Mm -hmm. it's how I accessed my most authentic self and it's where I feel most safe and most like Sarah Um, Mm. So my main goal when I work with anyone is to help them find that same version of themselves. So maybe that is a clinical skill in itself, um, Mm -hmm. but that's something I had before I knew what music therapy was. So I guess I think Mm -hmm. about it from more of a a musical perspective. So I guess to give an example, if um, I'm meeting a client for the first time, and now that I'm thinking about it, like these are clinical skills that I guess maybe I just knew before I knew they were clinical skills. Yeah, like you inherently had them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I am, my first thing is always client preferred music, which I think is the case for for many therapists. but I'm more thinking about that just because that I want to connect with them at their most truest self. And I'm not necessarily thinking about client preferred music is important because X, Y, Z, that they're more likely to do this or they're more mm-hmm. likely to do whatever. Um, You're like, I know it's in the research, <laughs> but it's also just important as human beings. Yeah. Yes. Like that we can connect. Absolutely. On that level with music. Yeah. And something that really helps me to be present is to not think about that stuff. And I know that I'm able to not think about that stuff because I had to overthink about that stuff for a long time. So it's just a part of the process Mm. now. Um, Yeah. But it helps me to not think about 
music therapy when I'm in a music therapy session, if that makes sense. Yes, I totally understand that. And I feel like that's such a good tip. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like, I feel like people have um, differing opinions on that. Because I remember like some professors would be like, well, in your session, you need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And like, here we are talking about don't like just do it. Don't even think. (laughs) And I feel like that's been true to me too. And in my work, like when I overthink it, it's like I get in my own way. Yes. And I, I leave that moment. I'm, I, I trust my intuition and it's taken me a really long time to trust my intuition. But Mm -hmm. I think when my choices are informed internally um, from my connection with it, because I think internal can also be my connection with the client because that's something that I feel Mm -hmm. internally. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I'm not taking any external cues or signals, but I'm thinking Mm -hmm. like externally and things that I've learned before. Um, I try to inform a lot of my decisions in the moment internally upon what I'm like emotionally physically feeling and what mm. I recognize that my client is emotionally and physically feeling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I feel like that's very similar to like um more of a psychodynamic approach like when I was working with with this one supervisor um she she had her PhD in psychology and she was kind of like teaching me, opening my eyes to this like relational based psychodynamic approach. Yeah. And it was very much that like we both have um, things that we bring into the session. We both have our own internal worlds and there are points within the session where we can feel each other. Like you can, you can, intuitively feel and probably externally recognize, you know, by the nonverbal cues, if someone feels comfortable. Right. It, it can be so helpful to process those things out loud mm-hmm. with someone, like almost like calling it out, like, oh, I noticed that during this song, you had your arms crossed. Tell me about that. Yeah. Did you not like it? What was your experience? What do you think that means? 100%. And that goes far deeper than behavioral music therapy that that we learned um, in undergrad. Yeah. And maybe there's a bit of counter-transference in this experience for me because I think since I didn't have my emotional needs met when I was younger, I'm so hyper-concerned in making sure that my client's emotional needs are met. Um, mm. And... I'm still kind of weeding through that a little bit, like trying to figure out like, like we were talking about before, like where I end and where my music therapist me begins, like where those Mm. two things fit together. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think sometimes I can run into Mm -hmm. trouble though in projecting that other people are having the same struggles emotionally that I did because they're, they're not, but sometimes they might be. Um, But when you brought up, um, the relational component of the psychodynamic approach that you were talking about. I didn't feel the freedom to really focus on the relationship until I, until I started working in like a DIR model. Um, Mm. 
mm-hmm. and um, DIR. So yeah, I was actually uh, as you brought that up, I knew I wanted to mention it, so I pulled something <laughs> up about it just because. Oh. <laughs> um, so DIR, I learned about it in my internship. It's called floor time therapy is how a lot of people oh, okay. um, might hear it. So I'll just give a little definition off of this website. Yes, so <laughs> yeah. So uh, DIR is the Developmental Individual Differences and Relationship-Based Model. Um, so it's oh, okay. kind of like a foundational development or a foundational um, model for looking at the social emotional development and how that impacts our overall uh, being and functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's specifically, that's usually with children, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one that's of the cool. agencies that I work for, we did for a couple years a DIR preschool group. It was called Next Step, Mm -hmm. and it was the next step for some kiddos who just needed a little bridge in between preschool and kindergarten. And it was a small group, and it was myself as a music therapist. There were two see-it instructors or special ed instructors. There was a speech therapist and an occupational therapist. So it was a super collaborative setting, and there were like five or six kiddos in the group. And all of the adults except for myself were trained um, in DIR therapy mm. and uh, like I said I had exposure to it at my internship because um, there was a there was a particular assessment model um, I can't remember exactly what it was if I remember I'll send it to you later um, but I, I knew what it was and I really liked it mm-hmm. and my kind of like thesis I did in my internship was using this DIR approach in an individual session versus using um, an ABA approach in a session. Oh, wow. And uh, this particular kiddo was in an ABA classroom, and so I would observe him in that setting and then use some of those um, techniques in an individual music setting. And then I would see him twice a week. In the other session, I would use more of a DIR approach, and I would mm. kind of chart progress, and then I kind of... Uh, looked at those things side by side. Um, that was my like end of the year assignment. Um, so cool. But my first time seeing it like really done by DIR practitioners was in this preschool group. And I loved it so much because mm. it was the first time I was like, oh, I don't have to be doing music the whole time. I don't <laughs> have to always be presenting something that my clients yeah. are actually giving me a lot of information if I just stop. Um, yeah. and, and this is coming from someone who music is first for you. Yeah, my So that's pretty cool to, to hear that. It was interesting because my internship was we went into every single session with a plan that we had to submit. And so mm-hmm. I was okay. in a center-based program, and I was doing six or seven sessions a day. So I was submitting, some of them were groups, some of them were individuals, all school-based. I was submitting Mm -hmm. specific plans for each group that I was doing, exactly what songs Mm -hmm. I was planning on doing, exactly what skills I was targeting. So every Mm -hmm. single thing that came out of my mouth was pretty much planned. And very much like school, very much like school. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I wanted to be a school based music therapist. But now upon reflection, school was just where I felt safe, because like I said before, Mm -hmm. home was not a really safe place for me. Um, Mm. So school is something that I was good at. School was a place that was predictable. 
that had structure, that I knew what was going to happen. Um, so I think that's what drew me to the school environment was that I felt safe yeah. there and it's kind of all I had known. Um, but this particular placement, um, I thought it was the perfect placement for me and it, I really struggled with that because um. that kind of clashed against my instincts. Um, mm-hmm. So then fast forward to being in this DIR group and it was the first place where I was like, oh, I kind of exhaled. Like this group was a huge exhale yeah. for me. Um, but did, were you going to say something? I feel like I interrupted you. Oh, I was wondering, you're probably going to, you're probably going to say it anyway, but I was wondering like the DIR and ABA, I feel like those are like night and day. hundred percent. Yes. Completely opposite. Yeah. So I'm sure you're probably about to say like, you know, you saw differences. So the reason I was so interested in ABA is that the first time I observed this kiddo in his classroom, I was like, is this unethical? I really, yeah. Um, it, I was very uncomfortable watching. I think they're like the discrete trials is like one of the, the techniques in ABA. And in many ways it felt like a style of conversion therapy for autistic kids. And it was not fun to witness. And Mm -hmm. so the reason I wanted to do DIR with this kiddo was that I kind of just wanted to see who he was free from who they were trying to make him be um, and just give him a space to like with no expectations for him, Um, like Mm -hmm. no edible reinforcements, no, Mm. no anything like that. Because ABA is very much like. So it's applied behavioral analysis. You do this behavior and you will get this reward. Yeah, that's that's definitely like one of the very shell. common techniques. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you have to be a certified provider. Mm. Um, and so at this particular center-based program, there were like a couple classrooms that were like ABA, I'm using quotes, like ABA classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kiddo was in that classroom. And that's why I wanted to learn about DIR was because I just wanted to see who this kiddo was. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm not personally a huge fan of ABA. I think that just clashes mm-hmm. against my own philosophy. But also mm-hmm. the agency that I work for that I was telling you about, the, the DIR group that we did, we have an awesome monthly group that's for DIR and ABA providers, and we all get together, mm-hmm. and we kind of talk about that's our cool. experiences. Um, and mm-hmm. I do think that it makes everyone better kind of looking across uh, – the street at what the other Mm -hmm. people are doing. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So DIR, can you, can you like um, tell us a little bit about like maybe a session you've done like that? Sure. So it's super play-based. So if anyone's like familiar with play therapy techniques and stuff like that, um, it's very much Um, Mm child-led and which I think is very similar to maybe many, many people's style in general. Um, and again, mm-hmm. just to clarify, I'm not trained in DIR. So 
take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. (laughs) Um, But from the couple of years that I spent in the program with those providers, the general approach that we used in that room was that the child was leading all of the experiences. And so they were kind of the one that was coming up with the ideas. And Mm -hmm. um, when the relationship felt safe, uh, sometimes we would introduce new ideas, but it was very child-led and 100% joining in their style of play. Um, Mm. so that can, this feels very natural to me, but let me see if I can kind of like unpack an example. So I did an evaluation a couple of weeks ago, um, with a kiddo who the rest of his team are DIR providers. So I kind of wanted to use that approach for his music therapy evaluation as well. And I always bring regular toys to my music therapy evaluations because for some little kiddos, um, music instruments are, a foreign object to them. Mm -hmm. So I might not see their uh, their most authentic style of play if I'm just introducing all novel materials. So I'll always bring in some familiar toys like a barn or matchbox cars or the barn is my favorite. I don't, I just, I love barns and houses (laughs) and like putting things um, in there and stuff. Does the barn come with animals? Yeah. So (laughs) I usually, I'll have the barn and then I'll have like little animals and stuff like that. And then I'll also have like small musical instruments that might accompany like sounds for the animals or something like that. Um, But so we had this barn and we were playing with it. And then we were kind of, um, I was observing how he was playing with it and it started as parallel play. I was like right next to him doing some things. And then I would just kind of test and see. Um, I would like repeat some of his ver- vocalizations or verbalizations and um, just kind of see if he would acknowledge my presence. Um, mm-hmm. And the main things that I was looking for in this kind of like floor time experience were cooperative play if he was willing to engage in cooperative play. Um, mm. And honestly, that was it. I didn't really care if there was eye contact or anything like that because cooperative mm-hmm. play or joint attention can look so different um, for everybody. Um, yeah. And when he was using like uh, little animals and stuff, I would start to replace some of those animals with instruments. And so when an animal mm. would do something... Um, I would do the same thing with an instrument, but obviously added like a new sound. And Mm -hmm. um, eventually it moved into this thing where we were both playing with the instruments next to each other. And it was, this sounds like it was happening quickly, but this was over like 35 (laughs) minutes. So it's a lot, a lot of patience and a lot of waiting um, and a lot of just observing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it became uh, this game where we were sliding these egg shakers down this boom whacker into the house and uh, he had some type of uh, phrase that he got from a preferred show or something like that where he was like wait 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 (laughs) (laughs) and so we would do that together and then the was eventually replaced by like the sound of an egg shaker Um, oh cool yeah so that was basically the whole session Um, but so much happened in in that time. Mm-hmm. So I hope that gives maybe like a, a better picture of what, of what that can look like. And there wasn't necessarily yeah. like overt or explicit music making happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was singing as well too. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like I need to 
explain myself when I'm not using musical techniques. <laughs> right. But like... As if music therapy looks one way. Right. <laughs> and as if music is the most yeah. important thing in the world. Right. Um, mm-hmm. f- for some people it is, but for many people that we work with, it's just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we should be using techniques that are out of our scope of practice or that mm-hmm. um, we're not trained to use. Um, yeah. But sometimes I, I definitely got to a point in some sessions where I felt like I was just shoving music down people's throats. Oh, and yeah. yeah, sometimes you were like trying to make something happen. With yeah, them. I've definitely gotten a lot of validation from this podcast as well, too. Just kind of mm. like I said, I can trust my intuition. I have permission to trust my intuition. And I mm-hmm. also have permission to make a choice to not use music and mm-hmm. to chat with a client or just to be with them if that's what yeah. they need. I definitely felt like I wasn't allowed to do that and that it wasn't music therapy if music wasn't taking up the whole session. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm still definitely kind of figuring that stuff out. But I always feel better, like I said, when I act with whatever my intuition is in the moment instead of Mm -hmm. forcing some other type of um, experience into the moment. Yeah. And I feel like it really depends on the place and the people and the expectations because like I know that with some of my sessions I've been able to take that more relational approach um where we're building trust over like months and maybe years Mm -hmm. whereas if I was seeing this one client in a facility I may only be given five sessions with her and so then it's like okay build rapport on day one and then work on your goals for the next four weeks right and it's like this rapid process yeah context makes a big difference yeah like I music therapy can work like that if there's a very specific um outcome that's expected and you're limited to that time you kind of have to you know make with make do with what you have Mm -hmm. um but then there's also this this other style of music therapy where it's almost like we are connecting with the human experience itself Mm -hmm. as music therapists in music therapy and so it's not it's not like okay let's get you to um, this goal or to do this thing, it's more like, let's experience life together and see what happens, see what, what you need because your body, your mind will, will bring it up inevitably. Mm -hmm. Um, and let's see how music can support that process. To be honest, I thought that up until like a couple years ago, I thought that anything that wasn't music, if it was too much talking, was psychotherapy, and I wasn't allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I made myself think that or if that was just, like, very much hounded in our schooling. But like you said, I love that you just connected it to the human experience. 
mm-hmm. like chatting and asking questions and reflecting <gasps> does not have to be psychotherapy. Right. And laughing. Like I have this one client, we laugh for like half of our sessions sometimes. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I see a gentleman, yeah. um, I used to work before COVID um, at a structured day program for adults who have mm-hmm. had traumatic brain injuries or strokes. Um, so it's kind of just like a vocational and recreational day program that they would go to mm-hmm. and socialize. And I did an adaptive music group there for years. And then the program shut down. We're getting started again soon, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. Yay. Um, but That's one so of the great. gentlemen, I uh, teach him p- piano lessons in his house. And... Um, It's a 45-minute to an hour-long session, and I would say that we play piano for about 25 to 30 minutes, and the first 10 to 15 minutes, we're just chatting. He lives by himself, um, and because of this program isn't in effect anymore, he doesn't have a lot of socialization or other people in his world. Mm. Um, I am one of the people in his world. Mm-hmm. And I'm in his home too, which is such, I get to see mm-hmm. a very personal, intimate part of his life. Um, yeah. So part of me chatting with him is me acknowledging that he's let me into his world and I see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he's losing a lot of independence as he gets older too. And uh, mm-hmm. part of his long-term symptoms from his traumatic brain injury have been Um, some like pretty serious bouts of confusion or short-term memory loss. And that's heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I'm able to talk about that and provide him some release and some comfort, I certainly will. And I didn't start doing that until we used to just jump right in with piano. And um, there was like no transition. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I would notice on the days that he would be extra frustrated, I would just like Mm -hmm. tell him to take a deep breath and just pause. And now I will know that something else is going on. Um, Mm. And so now we chat first and it makes the music making more productive um, and Mm. more success based for him because he's Mm -hmm. able to process whatever is taking up the most space in his mind and then yeah. at the end, we play Wii Tennis together oh, for nice. like 10 minutes every session. <laughs> How fun is that? Yeah. Oh, um, and I suck at it. So <laughs> it, it's we end the, the session with him being really successful at something that he really loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we just build that rapport every week. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't necessarily share like personal information about my life with him. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I feel that I'm going into his home. I'm seeing what a lot of people don't get to see in his life. Um, and part of, of those relationships for me is, I I've never said this out loud necessarily either, but just kind of like processing this. It's so much more than just doing the piano and doing like the music therapy portion of it. Mm-hmm. I can't ignore the fact that I am in his safe place, his physical safe place. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more that's there than piano. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just something that I've, I've been thinking a lot more about recently. Um, and just mm-hmm. like acknowledging the space that we're in. And mm-hmm. I think with home sessions in general, 
it's such an honor for someone to like let you into their home and let mm-hmm. you into that that part of their life. And to me, that comes with an added responsibility of acknowledging other parts of that person besides how they mm-hmm. are in the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So important. There's so much there. It, like in this conversation, all that's happening to me is like I'm thinking back to like all these different sessions that I've had with with clients um, and what it's been like to be in someone's home um, and just like the differences between the music making with different with different people sometimes when I think about the role that I play in some of my clients lives and it's not to say that I'm talking about everyone's personal life with them. This is just a particular mm-hmm. client who um, I was able to fill a role that he he needed someone to fill in his life without mm-hmm. it impacting um, the the music portion of mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, but I remember a lot of conversations. They weren't conversations in in college. A lot of um, lessons taught to us on um, like boundaries and Mm -hmm. um, ethical considerations in certain sessions. I remember Mm -hmm. this one, actually it was during my first practicum when at the end of the thing, the family gave me a card and um, Mm, gave me like this little piggy bank. And, and then I remember the next day we had this PowerPoint on like, you can't accept gifts and And you're like, uh, someone calling me out. Yeah, right I know. Now. <laughs> I was sitting there like sweating. Oh no. <laughs> and why I made the point to say it wasn't a conversation was because I remember it not being a conversation. It was like, yeah. these are the rules. Yeah. And, but like you, like we were saying before, there's context to every situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that an important part of being a therapist is that you're self-aware and yeah. you're aware of the context of a certain situation. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been given so many gifts in, <laughs> in my years as a music therapist. Yeah. Um, and we were, the way I was taught was literally to be like, thank you for this card. I can't accept it. <laughs> right. I remember that too. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's not natural. <laughs> it's not, not. Like what you would do in any other context or like even think about growing up and having teachers and like I know a lot of people would give their teachers gifts. I don't know if I ever did, but maybe this at the is end a of the hot year, take, like, but and maybe we'll have to cut this from the recording. But <laughs> I I feel like music therapy is often trying so hard to be respected by other people mm-hmm. in other fields that it takes the humanness out of it sometimes mm-hmm. and makes it look like way too sterile of a field. Like I yeah. started in the beginning, music is like one of the most intimate parts of myself. And yeah. I I acknowledge and I understand the clinical aspects of it, but at the same time, mm-hmm we are getting down to the nitty gritty of some of our clients' lives and innermost feelings. And if they feel so moved as to give us something physical as a token of their gratitude, so freaking what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, who are we to stop them from... 
and and that too might might be like a huge step for them in their care. Yeah, to be able to express gratitude. I th- and, I think and about share that with another person. Well, yes, what moves me to give physical gifts to someone? Mm-hmm. It's vulnerable to mm-hmm. choose something for someone that you want to present them with because you care about them, mm-hmm. and there yeah. was thought put into that, and it's like that feels explicitly anti-therapeutic to (laughs) turn that into a different experience (laughs) yeah kim just put her arms up in front of her chest like an x (laughs) can't receive no can't receive love can't receive validation can't receive gifts (laughs) and like i i think two context matters um totally because the the agency you're working for might have a very specific um, yes rule or standard about gifts or like I remember um, the hospice I worked for was like you can accept gifts as long as they're like under twenty five dollars or like if they're more than that then it has to be given to the whole team yeah and I'm like oh that's cool like you can still accept it and then share right it. I think I've worked um, under the same same type of policy before. Yeah. yeah, and that makes sense. That's thoughtful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But I know what you mean with, like, um, music therapy being sometimes so so sterile and so detached from life or mm-hmm. for, from humanity. And I feel like maybe that's, maybe that's the person doing the music therapy. Maybe it's the... Um, style of music therapy being done. Um, you know, maybe it's music therapy used more as a tool and less as an experience. Mm. I don't know. I feel like there's so many ways that we can look at this. Mm-hmm. But it's like I understand because it's like we have to remember that music is an art form. And that art is an expression of life. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe it's the difference of, um, like, sound. And I don't want to say sound therapy because that's an actual thing right. too. But using sound in therapy versus using music in therapy. Mm. That is very interesting. Or, like, using musical elements... In therapy versus using music itself. Yeah. Like, maybe that's what we're getting at. Like, the differences. Mm -hmm. Because music as a whole, you feel and you experience, and it's like this soundscape surrounds you Mm -hmm. and, like, penetrates just all the fibers of your being. Whereas sound and musical elements as a tool... It seems like one-dimensional, like surface level, like we're not entering into an experience. We're just using one thing to get one place. I don't know. Yeah. This phrase came to mind like where soul meets body, kind of Mm. like this idea that when you can use musical elements and sound, like you said, as a technique but there's a point then when there's a soul involved and mm-hmm. that would be considered 
the art form. So I think I've talked a lot with so many colleagues about music therapy and quotes like the struggles we've had with like the definition or the title of music therapy and what Mm -hmm. it means the the emotions that it brings up for some of us when it gets misnamed as musical therapy or when something is called music therapy that is not what we do Mm -hmm. and music's a really hard thing to catch um Mm -hmm. it's a moving target in so many ways and what is it like <laughs> yeah especially when you talk about soul yeah because soul too is the same type of thing that you almost can't name but we all kind of know what we're talking mm-hmm. about at least I hope everyone kind of has a feeling of what we're talking about yeah. and an experience to go by I think everyone also has off that same point everyone has their own very personal definition of what music is um, mm-hmm. and I just think about, I think, um, music therapists can have a di- different definition of music than performing musicians, than writing musicians, than people who consume music. Mm-hmm. Um, music is a, a very large thing, mm-hmm. um, that feels inappropriate to give one definition to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, as you were talking before, and I was thinking about, even when you look at the different degrees that some of us have, some of us, some of us have bachelor of science degrees, some of us have bachelor of arts degrees, mm-hmm. some of us, some of us have mm-hmm. bachelor of music degrees. And mm-hmm. I think I, my music therapy, 95% of the time is an art form rather than a science form. And that's just the type of therapist that I am and the type of musician that I am. Mm -hmm. And that feels really right for me to say. Um, Not to say that science isn't involved or that I'm not thinking about it, but also I'm not thinking about it. Yeah, like (laughs) you were talking about earlier. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I've definitely spent a lot of time wishing that my approach was more scientific or that my Mm. approach... um, looked like someone else's or garnered Mm -hmm. the same results as someone who might use more of a scientific or clinical approach. But Mm -hmm. who I am is so unique. And my style of therapy can't be imitated by anyone else. Just like, and that's why I think internship and and educational experiences like that where you're being trained by another therapist is tricky because Mm -hmm. there's an art form involved here. Yeah. And yeah. it, ah, I'm, I'm like shaking <laughs> thinking about. We're having ah. aha moments right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going back and thinking about the therapist, not that I tried to emulate, but, but that I tried to imitate. And then the experience is completely flopping because mm. I'm not them. Mm-hmm. And, ah, music is just such, um, such a sacred and such a spiritual thing that do you, do you kind of know where, where, like I, what I'm getting at? Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you and I wrote the same exact session plan, there is no mm-hmm. possible way it could look the same just mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of who we are yeah. as people and who we are as musicians. And mm-hmm. that's such a cool thing 
that we could literally write the exact same session plan together and it would look worlds apart. Yeah. Potentially. That's, yeah, that's kind of why, like, I know before we hit record, I was talking about how um, I can't separate myself from myself as a music therapist. And I feel like we're kind of, like, seeing that that thing from, like, a different angle now. Mm-hmm. Um, where no one can do music therapy like you because it's you. Mm-hmm. The music therapy is is partly you as a person. And I wonder, does that separate us from other healthcare fields that sometimes we try to compare ourselves to? Um, I think I think so. Well, I I think so because because of that. Like, I don't know. I want to say yes because of that like human art form piece of music therapy, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, but physical therapists and doctors like we all have soul and we all bring that into our work. Mm-hmm. So we kind we kind of all share that same thing, but maybe it's more obvious with music therapy. And as you were saying that, I was just wondering, is the soul the work for them or is it adjacent to their work? Mm, yeah. And maybe that's the science-led versus art-led. Right. Like that you were mentioning. So I... I went to physical therapy for a couple years. I was having some very severe hip problems, which were actually related mm-hmm. to a lot of trauma for me rather than like physical injuries. I was holding like mm-hmm. a lot of of emotion yeah. in my hips. Wow. And I remember going to physical therapy and I had an experience with an intern and with two different physical therapists who each time would do the same thing, but of course were different people. So the experience Mm -hmm, was different mm -hmm. every time, but the actual thing that they were doing to my body was the same every time and was felt the same every time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I know that there are some more prescriptive forms of music therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. Like when we're thinking about maybe some neurologic music therapy techniques Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But as a whole, and I apologize if this is completely... Um, reducing physical therapy in this moment. I, physical therapy was wonderful, wonderful for me, and I will go again if I need to. But mm-hmm. in that moment, this, all of those three people could all do the exact same thing to my body, and maybe mm-hmm. I perceived pain differently in those depending on the conversation or the relationship I had with each person, but the outcome mm-hmm. was the same every time mm-hmm. physically, which is why I went there. For, was mm-hmm. for physical relief and comfort. And then to bring it back to if you and I were to do the same intervention, mm-hmm. it there might be some of the same benefits, but I think it's a bit more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Has a little more of the relationship as as part of the outcome. Yeah. Part of the process, I guess. Yeah. This is really interesting. <laughs> this is a great conversation. I'm loving it. Yeah. This is this is the kind of stuff I 
Yeah, I could talk about all day. Like, it's just so, it's so fascinating how um, we, we are part of our work because a relationship is, is part of music therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why sometimes it's so hard to advocate for the field of music therapy or even describe it or educate on it um, because a huge piece is us Mm -hmm. as human beings. I remember one of our professors from NAS that we both had. um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really introduce, but I went to NAS too, like Kim did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A few years behind her. Um, I remember one of our professors um, saying that, I don't remember what story she was telling, um, but saying that she wasn't always just providing music therapy. She was providing Betsy therapy. Mm. Um, and that's always stuck with me. Ooh, I don't even remember her saying that, but that's so, that is so true. Mm-hmm. That is so true. And, and I may have brought this up on another episode, but I remember this one, um, this one place, like one of my big goals with, with my career is to create more jobs for music therapists. So I was at this one, um, elder care facility and I was telling that to an administrator, like, oh, I want to make more jobs and more, more opportunities, positions for music therapists and for music therapy, like in your, um, agency. And the, it was like, it was like one of those moments where, it like it did something to you like you recognize something that you didn't recognize before so it was like a pivotal moment for me and she was like oh well like if we if we start music therapy and and we develop a program like is it going to be you and i'm like <laughs> it like stopped me in yeah. my tracks i'm like uh uh-huh. well maybe <laughs> 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 If it works for my schedule and I want to, um, but maybe not because I want to create more jobs and provide more opportunities for local music therapists. So maybe I would develop it and then just hand it off to another music therapist. So what I'm hearing too is that even people that want our services can't separate us from our services. Yeah, exactly. She wanted me. It was so much less about like the service of music therapy and more about me as a human being and Kim therapy. my personality and yeah, mm-hmm. my aura, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like that's like um, a gift and a curse. Yeah. Because <laughs> it makes it so hard to advocate for music therapy and describe it and and define it because it's like, well... I have to describe and define who I am to you and how I use music in a context. I think it also contributes to really poor boundaries for some of us too because it makes it impossible to leave a job that's no longer serving us because sometimes the place Mm. is so attached to us in an unhealthy way that they're not necessarily attached to the service and the benefits it has for their clients or residents or students. They're attached to us. And I think a lot of us stay in jobs that we don't necessarily want to stay at because it literally becomes a codependent relationship. 
Yeah. Wow. I've had that experience with one of the facilities that I've worked at for five years now. And Mm -hmm. I had this moment last week when I got in and I just started crying at my desk Mm -hmm. because I knew it was time to go. And I had been ignoring the call that it was time to go Uh, for many, many months. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the things that went through my head were like, well, who's going to replace me? Everybody in -hmm. in my city is already busy and working. Who's going to pick up this Mm -hmm. 15-hour contract? What Mm -hmm. are these students going to do without me? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like you get a sub for your work. I've had very, like, few experiences where I sub for another music therapist or another music therapist subs for me. It's like, oh, we're just going to cancel. Right, because it's, like, next to impossible to do the thing the same way Mm -hmm. unless you're doing a very prescriptive type of music therapy intervention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm very proud of myself for the progress that I've made in my own personal therapy and just in my ability to like detach from those emotions a bit Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. look at this one particular job and say I'm not growing anymore I'm not happy here Mm -hmm. and I'm actually not providing the service that they think I'm providing because I'm so unhappy here Mm, um yeah and almost as soon as I made the energetic decision to let go of that contract within 24 hours I had filled in the spot with like a very exciting Mm. opportunity but that's so cool I I sometimes wonder if other therapists go through that same thing because we're Mm -hmm. so tied to our title and so tied to the job that we do and the places that we work for also tie us to that service that it it's just a really complicated situation to be in sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is like like you were so spot on when you said it like becomes a codependent relationship. And I think as professionals, we have to um, understand that we're not the only people or professionals in in our clients' lives. Mm-hmm. And that um, even if another music therapist isn't going to do it the way that I do, like they're going to bring something really special yes. to this person and this relationship. And I remember something that made me feel really like um, settled in this transition that I had with, with um, some clients. I was seeing... Um, this one, I, I was going to this one family's house and um, there were two boys, two brothers actually, that both um, were autistic or on the spectrum. And um, they had gone through several music therapists uh, at this point. And so I was getting ready to leave and transition out of this job. And I was talking with the mom and she's like, Kim, thank you so much for your work. Like, it's been wonderful. I love, you know, what you've been able to do with my boys. Um, And, you know, the next therapist is going to be great too. And I was like, that is great. Like, that's that's so reassuring for me to hear, okay, you've had music therapists in the past, you've worked with me, and you know that there will be music therapists in the future. And we all bring 
something special. We all bring our strengths and, and her two sons have still progressed Mm -hmm. throughout this whole time, even with the transitions and the different people. Yeah. Uh, as you were saying that it, it, uh, made me think of one of the bigger gaps in my knowledge that I bring a lot of attention to is, um, the struggle I have with letting go of clients or discharge mm-hmm. or termination yeah. of services or transition, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. I feel very skilled in starting with a new client or a new group or a new facility. And I feel very competent in that. But when I feel that inner pull, that's like, this is done or mm-hmm. someone else needs to step in here or they have met their goals, it's time. Um, I really struggle with that. And I don't feel that I received the education that I necessarily would have liked to receive in that. And that could have just Mm -hmm. been the experiences that I had too, that, you know, when you're in practicum with someone, you're seeing them for a short period of their therapy. You're not really witnessing people at the end of their services. Mm -hmm. And even when you're in your internship, you're there for 10 months, a year or so. So you Mm -hmm. might not see any termination of services there. So the first Mm -hmm. time you really see it is when you've been in the field for a little bit and you're like, what do I do? (laughs) Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I've definitely sought out supervision for those types of things before and just like getting a Mm -hmm. second opinion on it. And like we've said in this conversation leading up to this point, because there are so many other things tied into this and because it's music, because it's this art form that has Mm -hmm. this like intimate human connection to it, it can make those breakups intense and flooded with emotions. I've like uh, held parents mm -hmm. in my arms when on the day that I told them that like this is our last session or whatever it is. And it's like... I on my last day of PT, I definitely wasn't sobbing in my physical therapist's <laughs> arms. <laughs> yeah. Because it's it's all about the relationship. Mm-hmm. You build this relationship and it's like you build it just to break it. You know, like it it it's heart-wrenching. Yeah. And I I think about that too like in my own personal life. That's what it's going to feel like if I ever change um, therapists, like my personal therapist, because we've been working together for a long time now. Um, And yeah, I feel like that, that needs supervision that needs like, (laughs) that needs another, another um, professional to hold you Mm -hmm. while you're navigating the end of, of a significant relationship for those people and in your life. Yeah. I always, like, when I get to the end of, um, like, client work that has been really, really meaningful work, I always, like, think to myself, is this the one client that I'm going to have a personal relationship (laughs) with and, like, break ethical boundaries for? (laughs) Yeah, and then there's, like, the maneuvering of those things afterwards, too. Like, that Mm -hmm. then you receive, like, the Facebook friend request Or you receive like the video and like your text messages or whatever it is. And it's like, it's the maneuvering of that too, where, um, yeah, it's, it, it can be really tough stuff. And 
you think about some of the work that some of us do where we're doing more contract work and traveling. And Mm -hmm. I can think of like the one time where I shared that um, one of the caregivers was crying and I held her. I just got in my car and went to my next session. It's, Mm -hmm. it's like this weird feeling of like unresolved stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that's one of the things one of the reasons that I've moved more into like working with other therapists or like having a department Mm -hmm. or being Mm -hmm. around other colleagues, just I, for me, it was really hard to be the only therapist in my life uh, for most of the Mm day. Um, and I, I need someone there physically to process with like this. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, that's just how I am. I have to verbally process things out loud with someone Mm -hmm. else, um, to find like evolution. And something my therapist always tells me is that there's really no such thing as resolution. There's only evolution. Um, and that really helps me. Um, and that sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, evolution can look like a resolve of like a particular feeling. Um, but that most of the time it's like an internal growing process rather than like a resolve of a situation, Mm -hmm. if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when people talk about, um, the grief process, Mm -hmm. cause this is kind of the grief process itself and how, um, you don't get over, you don't get over whatever it is, you know, like a death in the family or whatever. You just like learn, you become a different person with, with that grief. Yes. So it is that, that evolution. I like that. I think, I think we're going to use, <laughs> we're going to use that word for the title of this. I love that. Something evolution or yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Um, I was thinking back to, uh, just this, this whole talk about discharge and how it's so hard for us. And I think it's because of that soul piece Mm -hmm. that we brought up earlier, you know, doctors are professionals and they see someone for their care and then the care ends. And it's like, there's an understanding of when that end date is going to be, but with music therapy, especially a style of music therapy that's not as um, maybe time and goal oriented. Um, You don't know when the ending is coming. And so, you know, you, you have to build that relationship and put your soul into it. And, and, you know, I, I, I think about like, I wonder if that, if that's more of a, um, like community community music therapy model mm-hmm. where it's like no this becomes part of your life this becomes part of your community yeah this music making experience together I that's literally about what I was about to say I think mm. there's an important intersection here to acknowledge with how our culture um addresses emotional and social work in general And I think sometimes when a client receives the style of music therapy that we're talking about, it might be a style of care that they've never received before. And Mm -hmm. there might be this unconscious acknowledgement that they've neglected caring for themselves emotionally and socially. And that there's almost this desperation sometimes that like, 
I can't let this care leave my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that what I don't know if there's a replacement for it. Because again, yeah. like you said, when it goes beyond specific goals and it's mm-hmm. just more of like a holistic process of caring for this person and music and is the vehicle. Yeah. How do you how do you tell someone that it is the right time to end that when they're like, I need this? Um, mm-hmm. Because we don't have the right emphasis on taking care of ourselves in that way in yeah. our Western culture. That's so true. And it's almost like we have to help someone dissect, okay, what is it about? about our time together that's so impactful. Yeah. Okay, it's the music. Okay, it's the relationship. Okay, it's the time. So how can you find those three elements, music, relationship, and time in other places? Mm -hmm. Maybe from three different things or three different people, not just one music therapist now. Mm -hmm. So my my colleague, Bree, who's been on your podcast before, my colleague Bree and I have been oh on on um oh she was seasons. on seasons of resilience yeah. yes yes um, okay okay cross podcast one of Kim's <laughs> other projects um, but Bree and I um, are co chairs of a department at one of the places that we work at mm. and we started the department just this year together we've worked oh, there for many cool. years together but we made it more of an official thing. Um, which is wonderful to just have that collaboration together and something that we've wanted to be really intentional in starting this department so that the foundation is very strong. Um, Mm -hmm. And something we've brought some attention to is what will discharge look like? Um, Mm. I think something many of us get caught up in is I, I have a pretty extensive wait list and I'm turning down clients all the time, but it's because I've been seeing Mm -hmm. the same clients for years and some of them, Mm -hmm. there's no end in sight because they just want this service for a long, long time. And, and that's a wonderful thing that I'm happy to provide for many of my clients. But there are some Mm -hmm. people who, is that appropriate? How Mm -hmm. do we determine that? Are we actually providing the right services to our community if we keep Mm -hmm. people for an indefinite amount of time and then have to turn Mm -hmm. away everybody after a year because we filled in all of the slots? Um, Yeah. So we've talked. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was thinking, like, I wonder if that's when, um, uh, how do I say this? Almost like there's a point where it isn't music therapy anymore. Mm. And it's just like music making, yeah. or, it's, or it's just music enrichment now, or yeah, something like that, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, we're not necessarily working towards something or exploring mm-hmm. what you need to explore. Yeah. Like, Brie and I have talked about what that might look like in terms of can we offer other services to transition our clients into, um, that's appropriate after 10 weeks, a year, mm-hmm. whatever it looks like. Mm-hmm. Can we offer more group experiences? Can we offer more community experiences? Can we offer um, experiences at a lesser frequency um, mm-hmm. to help people kind of have a little bit more independence and autonomy over taking that experience with them and generalizing it to their own life? Because, I mean, you yeah. look at the work, we both receive personal therapy there's work that we are responsible 
for taking on in between our sessions um, Mm -hmm. to benefit from the work. And um, sometimes I wonder if, do we give our clients those same assignments when it's appropriate? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think... And I'm, I'm glad, I'm so glad that I have a colleague who we're both on the same page here and we're able to like work this out together and yeah. agree that we can't just take 10 clients and then shut down our wait list for like three years until, mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. we're done with those clients. Yeah. And I feel like that is like a piece of, of our education that, that was important, um, is that generalizing this for someone's life um, or generalizing this skill in the classroom or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what makes music therapy music therapy and not just music um, where it's like, okay, we will have these experiences together. We'll have these realizations or breakthrough or processing in music therapy together, um, and that probably could happen indefinitely, but where can you take over you as the client? Like, where can the client take this over as their responsibility? And, and you know, when have they learned enough of those skills to do it without a guide, maybe? It's, it's hard. I'm, I'm kind of in that, that place with with a client right now where I'm like, okay, we've been working together for a long time. And, um, it seems like it's, 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 it's not as important that it's me anymore, that it's music therapy anymore. I think, I think she could benefit just as well from, um, having a really good friend and having, um, her favorite CDs available and having, someone to talk and laugh with yeah something consistent um but maybe it's maybe it doesn't need to be music therapy anymore right right and I'm wondering in that situation do you bring that up with your client and talk about that or Mm -hmm. is that not appropriate um I think if it's if it's part of their goal to be independent or or be comfortable or be able to manage mm-hmm. their mental health. I think it's completely appropriate yeah. to bring that up. With my particular client, I can see it being a very, very difficult conversation to have um, because music therapy has been a lifeline for her. Yeah. So I think it's it's going to be one of those things where it's like, where I think to her, it's just music therapy and, and Kim me um that is that is her lifeline and you know this is actually a good processing for me to be like okay maybe we should start this journey of talking about um how you can do that on your own Mm -hmm. how how you can get the same benefit out of this music therapy relationship um in your own life without music therapy yeah um, but I think that'll that'll be a process for this one particular client, definitely. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I definitely think it's going to be something she's not going to like to hear. Of course. <laughs> she's 
because she just thinks, you know, oh, it's music therapy. It's it's Kim. Um, and I think maybe, yeah, that is part of it. And maybe part of that process is grieving what you've had. Um, grieving what you've had in place and evolving into something something different. And I think, like you said, that is one of the things that separates music therapy from therapeutic music. Because... Um, like you said, therapeutic music is beneficial for life for most people. Yeah. For right. myself, you know, <laughs> my my songwriting yeah. and my performance part of my life um, is therapeutic towards me. Um, yeah. And so I think that's where we do struggle with that definition sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And what what separates it. And that is our responsibility in some cases to determine what separates it and then, and then act on that. Mm-hmm. And it's not an easy, easy decision sometimes or an easy process. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and maybe that's like, maybe that's a benefit to the more um, scientific clinical um, music therapy. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a benefit to not put as much of your soul into it. Mm -hmm. But that also, like, hurts my soul to think about. Yeah, I was (laughs) just going to say a lot. Then it's not going to be honest. (laughs) A lot of resistance comes up for me in thinking about that because I I already hate numbers. And thinking (laughs) about, like, quantifying... I can only yeah. do so many school-based contracts because, like, taking oh, the notes yeah. on percentages and, oh, wow. and like, quantifiable mm-hmm. things um, is icky for me. <laughs> I remember feeling that same thing with a new contract that I had at a hospital. And I was talking with some colleagues just about that feeling. And I'm like, oh, I think I have to, you know, take down her her blood pressure and her respiration, like all these things. But I don't really know how to do that. And there's so many numbers and, but I want to prove, you know, music therapy and prove to them that it's beneficial. And they were just like, well, has anyone else asked you to, to provide those numbers? And I'm like, my education. No, but I have to, (laughs) don't I have to? And they're like, well, maybe you don't have to, maybe your style isn't, isn't the very, um, you know, numbers and goal-based music therapy. And maybe that's okay. And maybe that has a place in the hospital too. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of Kim therapy and part of the services that you provide (laughs) and that like being there is enough. Um, Yeah. And knowing you in the way that I do, I feel that. Knowing you the way (laughs) I do. I always thought that's perfect. Um, <laughs> Anyone else know that song? <laughs> I feel like in the moment, um, you know what you're doing is right for your client, mm. and you know that it you know that it's had a benefit and is having a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why sometimes I I struggle with data because I know it's important. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, isn't that enough? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, like, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, I wonder about 
the intersections too of of ableism and data collection and desired mm. outcomes. Um, I don't know, and this is only something I've really like started to ruminate on. So I don't have any like clear mm-hmm. thoughts on this that I can necessarily share. But I've just been kind of curious about why we collect data in the way that we do, and mm-hmm. who it's for, um, mm-hmm. and why we have to prove something a certain way when there's visibly such a clear benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I'm also curious about like where my own resistance intersects with that too. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a very stubborn person. And um, if anybody is um, into astrology, I'm a double Aquarius. So I'm not double a fan. Double Aquarius? My, what does that mean? So my, my sun is Aquarius <laughs> and my moon is Aquarius. Oh, I, I don't know that much about astrology. So that's why I'm like, wait a second, how can you have two? Yeah. <laughs> so the three main ones are your sun, your moon, and your rising or your ascendant. Oh, um, okay. And how do you how do you know? So but you what? can figure out what your birth chart is if you know where you were born and exactly what time. That oh determines goodness. where okay. the sun and the moon so were when you were born. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I definitely recommend just checking it out. It's So now I'm like going to go down a rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, <laughs> because well, the the sun is only like our sun sign which is determined by just our birth month or birth date. Um Okay. So I'm Aquarius too. Yeah. Um, is only a determinant of like a small part of the way we are. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all to take with mm-hmm. a grain of salt too. But it is cool to yeah. like bring some awareness um, mm-hmm. to to parts of ourselves that maybe we um, felt like guilty about or wanted to change. But maybe that's just, that's who we are too sometimes. Um, yeah. But par- part of my double Aquariusness that I acknowledge is that I'm not a fan of rules and I've Mm. always been a rule breaker and a rule Mm -hmm. questioner too. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. so that I, that's definitely come up a lot in my work and something that I'm so happy that I have my performance and writing career in my life because I make my own rules for that. So I think without that balance, (laughs) I'd be very unhappy. Um, yeah. And in just a healthcare field, um, but yeah, that's it's it's interesting. Have you have you heard of um, Gretchen Rubin and the Happiness Project? Yeah, I read that and book. She does the Four Tendencies yeah. too. So I'm thinking like, okay, you must be a rebel then, of the Four Tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> a rebel with questioner, part part question, part rebel, yeah. part questioner. I haven't read. I read it my freshman year of college. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, I'll have to go back to that. Um, well, yeah, the yeah she has the two books, um, the Happiness Project, and then the Four Tendencies. Okay, I did not read the Four Tendencies. Is do yeah, you recommend it? It's like, yes, I do. If you, if you're into like, um, um, like the personality typing and kind of naming parts of you and and how you act and react and things like that yeah it's definitely one of them that that I found to be eye-opening for me I am an obliger and part rebel too I think but it's kind of like how we respond in certain circumstances yeah um like 
if, if, if I'm presented with something, will I automatically question it? Will I automatically just say no and want to do it my way? Will I feel this like codependent relationship and have to do it the way that someone asked me to? Or if given this thing, will I just do it? No questions asked. Okay. It's kind of like those four different types. Um, I do like to learn that stuff about myself because I think having that awareness, um, also helps me tune into my clients. Um, yeah. In, in certain like ways too. reason yeah. for supervision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really opens your eyes to like just how you are and how you act, um, in music therapy as a music therapist. Yeah. It's so important to have that awareness. Yeah, I'm happy I have it. (laughs) Uh, Well, um, we've been talking for a little bit. Yeah, we have. (laughs) (laughs) This is our longest conversation ever. And yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's the first time we've really (laughs) talked about music therapy. I know, I know. We started to kind of like break the ice a little bit the last time I talked to you and Greg and yeah. and you were like no save it <laughs> right save it come on the show we need to do this on air <laughs> uh, so um yeah we can either keep going or just cut it right here <laughs> we can keep going and split it into two episodes I I should just have you back though yeah we'll just we'll just hop on again and keep going. Hi friends, it's Kim coming to you um, after the conversation. Wasn't that just a great conversation? I feel like I could chat with Sarah forever and we did actually talk for a little longer than um, you heard today. So I'll be sharing uh, the second little snippet of our conversation another time. But for now, I wanted to leave you with um, one of her recent releases. So we didn't get to an introduction, but Sarah is um, in Buffalo, New York. And not only is she a music therapist, but she is a um, recording and performing musician and songwriter. So here's one of her latest songs, What My Body Needs. And you can find it on your streaming platform. And um, music therapists, please use this in your sessions if it's appropriate. It's a very music therapy type song for children and adults. So enjoy. I can handle what comes along So I check in, look inside And I find what makes me alive Maybe a stretch, maybe a drink Maybe I need some space to think Space to breathe, space to move Space to do whatever I choose So I ask myself In a gentle voice And I honor it 
recognize my worth So I drink in, look inside And I find what makes me alive Take a nap, take a break Take a walk by a lake Give a squeeze, give a hug Give a call to somebody I love So I ask myself In a gentle voice What is my body?